week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1924, the Giro d'Italia got underway in Milan. The route consisted of 3,613 kilometres, raced over 12 stages, starting and ending in Milan. This is longer than the route of this year's Giro, and in nine fewer stages. The race was ultimately won by a rider called Giuseppe Enrique. Greg LeMond is notable, amongst other things, for becoming the first American winner of a Grand Tour when he won the Tour de France in 1986. But Giuseppe Enrique was actually born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1898 and could perhaps rightfully claim to be the first American Grand Tour winner. Enrique soldiered through the latter stages of the 1924 Giro with a serious foot injury which rendered him unable to stand. Once he was on the bike he was fine, but as soon as he came to the end of a stage he required somebody at the finish line to immediately greet him in order to take his weight so he would not have to walk. The story goes that upon arrival in Milan after the final stage, Enrique was not helped off his bike and was forced to put weight on his injured foot. Consequently, his first act as the new Giro d'Italia champion was to pass out from the pain. The 1924 Giro d'Italia arguably also provided the first Giro stage finish outside of Italy, having been under the control of many countries in the 20th century, including Austro-Hungary, Italy, Yugoslavia, Croatia and even the independent free state of Fiume, the city of Rijeka played host to the finish of stage 10 that year. Although it had been annexed by Italy three months prior to the start of the Giro, so it was part of Italy at the time, but the city now forms part of Croatia. The stage that day was won by a man called Romolo Lazzaretti, but what is far more interesting about this stage is the rider who came last. For it wasn't a man at all, it was a woman called Alfonsina Strada. Stage 10 in 1924 from Bologna to Rijeka was a whopping 415 kilometres, by far the longest stage of the race, and it took Strada 21 hours to complete. Having been lenient once with Strada finishing outside the time limit on a previous stage and allowing her back in the race, this time the race organisers were not so forgiving and she was disqualified. But she was unperturbed and completed the final two stages of her own accord, but not as part of the official race results. She remains the only woman to have ever competed in one of cycling's three grand tours. Welcome to this episode 11 of This Week in Cycling History. My name's John Galloway and my co-host is... Killian Kelly. Killian, um, women shouldn't ride bikes and this is, this is a clear example of that truth. This is a fine line we're treading now, a line that you have crossed before many times, so I think I'll stay safely on this side of it. What an amazing um, rider, though. I mean, seriously, what an amazing rider. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic story, and um, it's actually it's actually quite difficult to find stuff about it in English anyway. Um, I, I know I've actually I've been reading, um, um, it's a great book by, uh, jo- uh, Jesus, who's it by? It's called Pedalera Pedalera. It's by a guy called John Foote, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, it's a history of Italian cycling, and and in it is the story of this this woman, Alfonsina Strada, and uh, it's one of the only mentions I could find in in English books. Anyway, I know there's a whole host of books in Italian that uh, unfortunately are are unavailable to me. But um, it, yeah, it, it's really interesting, and I suppose the story behind why she ended up in the race is that um, the big champion, Italian champion at the time, was Costanti Girardengo. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's probably most famous for winning loads and loads of editions of Milan San Remo. But at the time, he was winning. He he, he was good in the Giro d'Italia as well. And uh, they, he had some kind of pay dispute with the with the Giro organizers, along with uh, m- many other of the top favorites. And uh, they pulled out. They didn't ride it. 
It was so about I, uh, start start or, or appearance fees rather, wasn't it? It was, it was. Yeah, it was a bit of money. Yeah. Which which it always is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the other ones who didn't um, who didn't start, and I mean, this is this is from the deep mists of history. A name people might recognise is Batekia, who we've seen on, on many great frames over the years. So these are these are names that are at the very core of our sport even now. Yeah, and I, actually, I, I must uh, call uh, a mistake of myself as well. A couple of episodes ago, I said that it was an interesting story how Costanti Girardengo died, but it, it, that's actually not true. Um, it, it was Otavio Batecchi, I, I meant to say, and uh, his death is interesting. But again, we might we might save that for another week because it is a really interesting story. But uh, yeah, so so all, all of these guys pu- pulled out, and the organisers were were left kind of scratching their heads, saying, "Well, Jesus, how how are we going to get people to to buy papers and and read about this race?" And w- one of the things they did was uh, grant permission for this w- woman to to take part. And you know, she wasn't without uh, any previous. She had ridden the tour of Lombardy. A couple of times once in the first time she did it it was uh actually a good few years before she rode that year it was in 1917 and uh and she finished and it was uh it was a, it was a particularly tough edition uh, there was 72 people started it and only 32 people finished and she was the she was the 32nd but, but she finished but she finished yeah 40 other 40 guys didn't and um she she there's, there's all these other kind of rumors about her that she had this um crazy husband I, I mean crazy is, is probably on, on pc these days but at the time he, he was uh labeled as crazy and he, he was in a mental institution and um <laughs> there's, there's a story that she she got she had become famous on this giro that she she wrote and people were buying papers to see how she was getting on and there was a particular stage that ended in laquila um it, I, I think it was about halfway around and um, when she got to the stage finish, she, she was she was last. She was coming in behind all the men, but all the crowd stayed around to to wait for her to cheer her on. And when she when she got to the finish, there was this like whip around, and people donated money to her. And the story goes that she immediately went to the nearest post office and sent that money to the mental institution for her husband's care, which is. Uh, an, an interesting aside. Well, but her, her husband apparently bought her a drop handlebar racing bike for the wedding present. Was, well, I didn't know that. And I mean, apparently in one of the stages, she, it was a horrific stage with you know terrible, terrible weather, um, and she she was in fact disqualified because she was outside the time limit. Yeah. The organiser of the Giro apparently paid for her to continue because people were buying papers and gathering by the roadside. She'd become a media event as well as you know a great athlete. Yeah, and and I suppose, um, like it must be said as well. Like I, I think it gets said about a lot of sports that it was harder in the old days. You know, like with footballers, they were going around wearing these jerseys that weighed three kilos, and a football made of real proper leather that weighed five kilos, and they had to play four games in five days, and it was really really difficult. But I think in cycling, more than other sports, it it really really was harder in the old days. Like you weren't. There's all these rules, like you had to you had to bring all your own, you know, puncture repair kit. It sounds stupid now, but you'd bring your own puncture repair kits, your own pumps, all your own food. You couldn't accept outside help. Yep. Your forks broke. That was it. You had to fix them yourself. And you know, it, all of these rules were were generated to to cause drama, but they were also uh, the effect was that it was Jesus, it was unbelievably difficult to complete these these stages without help and the stages were even harder i mean that stage it was you know over 400 kilometers that's 
that's mental now these days when you think about it. Oh, with, the Giro the, the that year was three thousand six hundred kilometers, and it was twelve stages. Yeah, yeah, mental. It, it it is mental, and um, you know she she, she really uh, put it to a lot of the men that that didn't get around the course that that uh, called it a day before the end, and I, I suppose it it does throw up. Uh, from a, from a modern perspective, w- whether um, women would be again, this is this is the fine line we're, we're treading here. But I mean, careful, funda- careful. <laughs> fundamentally, women are different animals, literally, than man than men, and you know their physical capabilities are different. So I suppose the the question is, you know, w- would a woman be capable of uh, being competitive in the men's peloton? And the obvious example now, more than ever, probably, is Marion Voss because she's just so incredibly dominant in the women's peloton. And it's, uh, I mean, I suppose she can only speak for herself, but it, I don't know, maybe it's getting boring for her winning all these races with, with. I mean, I wouldn't say ease. It's still difficult to do what she does. But, uh, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if she was allowed into the men's peloton to to see how, how far she could go? I, and, um, like, I know Scott is a bit of an advocate of, of women's cycling. I wonder what his thoughts are, but... um. Like I, I, there was a recent race, was it was it Flesh Wallon, where um, you know the the times up the Murder Mur- 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 were uh, they were compared with the men's and they actually weren't that close to the men's. You know they still even though um, like the the winners time of the, I think I'm writing saying the women's the winners time of the women's race was still a good bit off say thirtieth fortieth place in the men's race. Thing is, I mean it, it's. It's basic physiology and also basic physics. We have women who are just as gifted as aerobic athletes as the top men. And Voss is a perfect example. But just by their physiology, they're carrying more fat. You know, which is why we find them interesting to look at. Um, But that means even with as good lungs, as good heart, everything else being equal, they'll be heavier and cycling is predominantly a power-to-weight sport. And that, I mean, that's... That doesn't make the women's racing any more interesting, or any less interesting, rather. I might edit that bit out. <laughs> that, that doesn't make the women's racing any less interesting. But, you know, they're not the same animals at all. And thank God for that, or the world would be a boring place. No, I, and I suppose it also must be said, like, it, it's, you know, it's one thing to look at figures of, uh, you know, average speeds and p- power to power outputs for races and compare the women's peloton with the men's peloton and you know we're talking now whether Marion Voss would be able to to do what she does in the men's peloton but like uh you know the women's peloton fundamentally would be going slower than the man than the men's and you know that's what Voss has to deal with day to day and it wouldn't make sense for her to go oh actually you know they're only going 38 kilometers per hour here I could go 42 and go off on her own whereas you know if she was in the men's peloton that was going 42 you know, she might, you know, she might be fine. She'd be a decent domestique, is what yeah, she'd be. Yeah, it's just. Well, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, it, it's hard to just remove. It, it, it's it's hard to remove yourself from the numbers and and uh, imagine what actually might happen if if this did come come to play out. Um, I, I don't think it ever will. Uh, I think um, the powers that be in UCI are far, far too conservative for, for this to ever happen, but uh, now, it would be interesting. Before we dig ourselves too deep a hole that we'll never get out of, I can think of a few women who are already be heading towards Peebles and, uh, <laughs> and you know, the Southern Ireland with, with big sticks and pitchforks and stuff. I've got to say that a lot of the most interesting races I've watched this year have been in the women's racing scene. So, you know, we're not being pejorative about it. We genuinely love women's racing but it's just, it's just basic physiology um, 
let's move on before before the lunch mob arrives. In 2003, Mario Cipollini broke Alfredo Binda's record for the number of stage wins in the Giro d'Italia. Alfredo Binda was the second campionissimo of Italian cycling after Costante Girardengo was the first to bear the name. Binda won the Giro overall five times, a record he now shares with his successor as campionissimo, Fausto Coppi, and of course, Eddie Merckx. But it was Binda's ability to win stages which was so impressive. In the 1927 Giro, he won 12 of the 15 stages. In 1929, he won eight stages in a row, a record for a Grand Tour. In total, in the three years from 1927 to 1929, he won 26 of a possible 41 stages, and he was to rack up 41 stage wins in total. Binda surely would have won more stages had it not been for what occurred in 1930. After Binda's total dominance over the previous three years, the Giro organisers were beginning to worry that their race was no longer exciting. Consequently, they made the decision to pay Binda not to take part at all. They offered him 22,500 lira, the same amount of money he would have gotten for winning it, and he accepted. He rode the Tour de France instead and won two stages before abandoning. And he went on to win the World's Road Race later that year, the second of three occasions on which he would pull on the rainbow jersey. It was 70 years later that Mario Cipollini finally broke Binda's record. Having equaled the record the previous day, the Lion King won his 42nd Giro stage into Montecatini Terme while he was the world champion. Cipollini won his first Giro stage in 1989, aged just 22. He took to the start line of the Italian Grand Tour 14 times and won at least one stage in 13 of them, only missing out on a 100% record during his final participation in 2004. Now, I've often said that for most cyclists of uh, my generation, Alfredo Binder's little more than a, a name on a toe strap, but he was he was a campionissimo, a great giant of the road. He, he was, yeah, and again, just to refer back to this book I'm reading, Pedal Air, Pedal Air, it's, it's brilliant, and it goes into Binder and uh, how dominant he was, and he was completely dominant. He seemed to, to win at will, and that story of being paid to not take part in the tour kind of sums it up. Like, he was just... He, he could have won it if he wanted to. And uh, the the phrase that Foote uses in the book is, is that he was actually a victim of his own success. I mean, when you the book goes on to describe the, the story of uh, Copy and Bartley and this rivalry that got built up and you were either a Copy fan or a Bartley fan and people turned up at races to see what would happen between the two and it was this amazing rivalry and and uh, they needed each other to to live off each other's myth and legend and success. Mm-hmm. Whereas Binda had, had no such rival. And uh, he, he was left to be dominant on his own. And he, he perhaps maybe in hindsight would have been more rever- revered, or not that he's not revered, but he might be more revered and respected if he did have this, you know, you know this... The right shadow- to make it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in fact, it, you know, it was unbelievably impressive but maybe just not quite as interesting as the victories racked up by Copy and Bartley because he was so unrivaled for, for the duration. i tell you what strikes me, actually, though, because when we were prepping for this show, I went and looked at some photographs of Binder, which I hadn't done for a few years. And if you look at pictures of, uh, well, Alfonsino, who we were talking about in the first bit, that'll be my dog. <laughs> and if you look at pictures of, of cyclists of that era, they often look like uh, museum pieces. You know, they, they look like slightly chunkier men in woolly, woolly shorts, you know, with their tubulars around their shoulders. And they don't fit into the modern picture of what a cyclist should look like. Yeah. If you look at Binder, you could put him in a quick step jersey and he'd look right at place beside Tom Boonan. He looks like a cyclist of the modern era. 
you know, he's lean, he's muscular, and that'll be my dog again. <laughs> uh, he's lean, he's muscular, and he looks like he could compete in Paris Roubaix or Lombardy tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I suppose it's it's a question that will never get answered: is how these guys would fare if they were if they were plunked into the to the the uh, contemporary peloton. You know, I mean. It, it, it's it's it, like I said, it's a question with no answer. But it it is. Um, it's fun to speculate. It, oh, well, it is, of course, it is. But I mean, these guys, you know, they drank and smoked, you, you know, and they 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 racked up. I, I I don't know. I'm guessing. I'd say they probably racked up more kilometers in racing and in training than riders do these days. I don't know. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, completely. I mean, one of my chums, Tony Houston, who won the, the 1955 Tour of Britain. Um, talked to me about he, his average training ride on a Sunday was uh, 200 miles and he wouldn't take any water with him because it made you soft <laughs> you know? yeah and, no, and, those kind of old school philosophies <coughs> excuse me and uh, like like I say I mean these guys smoked and there are photos of these guys smoking in the peloton although I know there is, there's also a photo of Mario Cipollini smoking in the peloton recently enough but uh, he, he, he's, he's something else altogether. Well, Cipollini, uh, I, I mean, you talked about Cipollini. How do you compare the likes of him to Binder? Because he, he broke Binder's record. And I remember watching and there was a lot of suspense because he, Pataki kept you know nipping him just before the finish or getting yeah, away. And it looked like he wouldn't get the record, but he finally did. But for me, he's a less complete rider than Binder, even though he's got more Giro win, stage wins. Uh, yeah, yeah, completely. Like, obviously, he, Jesus, like Cipollini was a sprinter and that's what he was, whereas Binder was a... Was you know he was winning stages on his way to winning the Giro. I mean, there's a bit, bit massive difference, but I suppose it must be said as well. I mean, quite apart from the fact that Binder didn't have this unbelievable rivalry, uh, like back in those days, teams played much less of a role, and it tended to be that if you were the strongest rider, you would win. Yeah. If, if nothing awful happened, like your forks broke or whatever, you know, it, it was. You know, it was every man for himself almost. And if if you were the strongest rider in the race, you you would probably keep on winning the stages because that's just the way it worked. Whereas obviously now, uh, in modern cycling and in Cipollini's day, um, which is modern cycling also, obviously, uh, you know, the, the teams play much so much more of a part. The tactics, it's it's just it's not it's it, it's certainly not the strongest rider wins every time. I, I mean, they are completely different ways of 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 uh, how they approached winning their stages. And, and Binda's probably was more impressive. But uh, the resolve that Cipollini showed in that uh, in that Giro with Pataki, like you say, I mean, Pataki was this kind of emerging sprinter. He he, he was kind of old when he came into this older, like he, he only kind of started winning races when he was 25, 26. And, um, you know, he, he had he had come along and he was it was he was the man now in the Giro and he, he was the guy who won the sprints. And like you say, he kept on... Everyone was waiting for Cipollini to to draw level with the record on forty one, and Pataki kept on winning. And and then if it, like you, you kind of felt Cipollini was getting on, you kind of felt like it was now or never for him with this Giro. He was either going to break the record or next year he'd be too old. And the fact that he kept on plugging away and uh, he equaled the record, and then the following day he won it was was really really impressive. Yeah. And I suppose it must be said again. I know I've said it before. Like Cipollini has this reputation of being this you know this playboy and this kind of clown in the peloton which he kind of was but uh you know he he also I, i've read a couple of interviews with, with him in the in the magazines and stuff in the run-up to the giro and uh in, in amongst the kind of the outrageous statements that he comes up with um the, all of the interviewers seem to come back to the fact that he he was this he, he did train unbelievably hard 
and uh, but he just had this public persona of being a bit of a, a monkey and a bit of a uh, you know playing up to the camera all the time and and that's that was a per- something he did on purpose added to, to his uh, value i mean it's as simple as that his media personality made him worth more which got him you know a bigger wage Absolutely, you know, and I'm sure he, he's no easier. So, you know, he knew that, but he did work incredibly hard uh, in in training. And I mean, he like, like I said before, he has won three points jerseys in the Giro d'Italia. You, you know, it, it goes to show. Like, obviously, every Giro route is different, but I mean, how many sprinters are left in this year's race? You know, yeah, and it goes to show that he really didn't care about the Tour de France because he could get over claims that were harder than anything in the Tour at the time. I mean, yeah. some of those Giri that he got over the hills were brutally hard mountains, and you know he, he managed within the time limits. Um, Jeez, we, we might see him back in the Giro next year. Oh, don't please, no, no, please. <laughs> he's he's too old. He's forty five. Just just retire and chat up women and drink wine, Mario. Please. <laughs> now, before we move on to the last bit, um, we need to mention Binder's record as a, a director sportive, actually. Because that arguably is, is even more important for, for Italy than his dominance as a rider. Because we've seen with Frank Schleck leaving the Giro uh, today as we record this, that being a DS isn't, isn't an easy job when there's either brothers working together or, or arguments within the team. And he actually managed to ban, balance Coppi and Bartali against each other, keep them in balance in the interests of, uh, of Italian cycling. So he deserves some kudos for that as well. He, he he does yeah, and uh, one of the models of of um, uh, bringing a nation together behind one man um, in this instance it was the World Championships is with Mario Cipollini, um, when he won the World Championships in two thousand and two it was uh, Franco Ballerini who was the mastermind behind that and uh, for for a few years previously it was thought impossible that you could bring all these stars of Italian cycling together to work behind one guy to win the jersey and. Um, they, he, he convinced him to do it and to back Cipollini on the most incredibly boring route of a world championships ever seen on that Zolder race track yeah. but they, they did it and, and he won it and like you say uh, Binda years before had to do the same and he was managing Coppi and Bartley and uh, he, he won um, uh, in, in, in the Giro they were still with trade teams but in the Tour de France it was national teams so they were you know they were both riding for what was it, uh, an Italy team and uh, he, he won Tours de France with uh, Bolt and with uh, Manny, Frenzo Manny as well, I think, yeah. which uh, which is just, you know, it's the measure of the man that he was capable of managing these egos. Now, we're going to talk about the, the Vuelta España uh, to finish and a man who, who just enjoyed doing too much work. Um, the Vuelta used to be in, in the spring, which is why we're talking about it now. Uh, but this man, I remember he appeared basically every week in Cycling Weekly he didn't seem to know how to how to take a day off and that's Marino Lajaretta In 1982 Marino Lajaretta won the Vuelta España Back in the 80s of course the Vuelta began in April and ended in early May just before the start of the Giro Lajaretta actually finished second that year behind fellow Spaniard Angel Arroyo but two days after the riders stood on the final podium it was announced that Arroyo had tested positive after stage 17 for methylphenidate along with three other riders. Arroyo was in the leader's jersey at the time and the second place rider overall, Alberto Fernandez, was also one of the riders who tested positive. These positive tests resulted in Lejaretta being retroactively declared the winner of the race by a slender 18 seconds over Michel Palentier, the same Michel Palentier who was thrown off the 1978 Tour de France for a doping offence while wearing the yellow jersey. 
But winning a Grand Tour is not what Lejareta became notable for. He became notable for completing Grand Tours. Finishing three Grand Tours in one season is a feat which has only ever been achieved by 30 riders, and king among them is Marino Lejareta. He started and finished three Grand Tours in one year on four separate occasions. Remarkably, he did it three times in a row in 1989, 90 and 91. His best performance came in 1989 when he finished in the top 20 in all three races, 5th in the Tour, 10th in the Giro and 20th in the Vuelta. However, Lajaretta's performance in 89 is not the best performance from a rider to have completed all three Grand Tours in one year. That honour belongs to the Italian Gaston Nencini, who won the Giro in 1957 and also finished 6th in the Tour and 9th in the Vuelta the same year. He remains the only rider to have won one of the Grand Tours in a year in which he finished the other two. He also won two stages and the Mountains classification in the Tour that year. However, if we were to add up the final positions in the GC of riders who have completed all three Grand Tours in one year, the rider with the lowest score would be the Frenchman Raphael Geminiani, who impressively finished 3rd, 4th and 6th in the Vuelta Giro and Tour respectively in 1955. Seriously though, Marino Lajaretta, every week he was in Cycling Weekly, I mean every every day of the year he seemed to race, he couldn't give up and considering how, how difficult those races were, he might never have won you know, the, the Tour of the Giro, but dear God he did really well performing evenly across the year. Yeah, and, and I suppose the fact that the Vuelta was in April makes it all the more impressive, I mean now... You know, the, you've got the Giro in May, you have a month's break, then you've got the Tour, then a month's break, and then you've got the Vuelta. Whereas, you know, there were some years where there was only like three or four days between the Giro ended and the, or sorry, the Vuelta ended and the Giro started. Yeah. And then you had a couple of weeks and then the Tour. But like these, you know, these three Grand Tours were all in the space of four months, which is kind of mind boggling that uh, you, you, he was capable of riding all three and, like you say, being competitive in all three. You know, he was, it wasn't just, wasn't just making up the numbers you know and uh it is um e- even in in those days um you know like we talked about in a previous piece when maybe riders were 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 harder men and mm-hmm. uh were capable of 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 suffering more uh there's not many riders that that did that that well, no, did I mean, what, the that, thing that gets me this isn't the year of when you just went out and rode you know like we were talking about tony houston where you got in the miles this was he was behind people like uh, bernardino Miguel Indurain, um, you know, Sean Kelly. This was a period when already riders were starting to peak for specific races. You know, they weren't just riding all year. They were putting all their eggs in, say, the, the Tour de France basket. And to do, you know, to do top 10 finishes in every one of those against riders who were specifically targeting those races, is it just deserves respect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it definitely does. Like, only, only one guy did it last year. That was, his name is Sebastian Lang. He's a German guy on the. Uh, he was on the Omega Farmer team, and uh, you know, I suppose, especially these days, um, more so than the eighties and early nineties when Lehrer was doing the. The teams are bigger, yeah, and, and they're they're more capable of spreading themselves over these three races. You know, most teams have twenty five to thirty riders, where when Lehrer's day there might have been only maybe. I don't know, 15 or 16 or less than 20 anyway on the team. And uh, they were spread slightly thin. So these days it's, it is really quite rare for a rider to do it when, because there is no real reason why, why you would be expected to, you know, because there are enough riders. But, um, uh, I, I suppose one of the things that this story throws up as well is this idea of all these retroactive victories. Um, like it was, it was, 
the year it was the year late a year later or it was the following year sorry it was early in um the, the following february mm-hmm. that uh Leherata actually got confirmation that he was going to win that well that had happened the previous april which is kind of the situation we all found ourselves in with the contador victory and uh you know it is it is farcical and and it is it is kind of stupid going back and, and and changing these race results and again it's gonna i'd say it'll probably rear its head by the sounds of things with what lance armstrong has been saying in the media he, he's kind of he's almost sounds like he's resigned himself to the fact that he is going to be stripped of one or two of his tour wins now whether that plays out or not oh, i suppose completely i mean that that was a really surprising interview because it it, it very much sounded like a man who was um well, he had one eye on public office and he was trying to minimise the, the PR damage uh, by saying, look, essentially, I, would, I was just doing the same as everybody else. I was still the best guy was what I took from that. Um, yeah, and, 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 and that's that's the problem that it throws up. Like, I mean, uh, I, I, as far as I know, I don't think Lajaretta was ever involved in any, or well, involved, was ever exposed as being involved in any, in any maybe he was, I don't know. Um, I mean, he was part of that on-site, on-site team with Manolo Says in charge. But, like, you know, he only finished uh, just less than 20 seconds ahead of Michel Palentier, who, like I said, was thrown off the tour for doping. So, you know, if Angel Arroyo had been thrown off, you know, they would have been awarding the victory to Michel Palentier, which, again, is the situation we're going to be left ourselves in if Armstrong gets stripped. I mean, who do they give the victories to? Jan Ulrich? Yeah. Uh, Basso? How far down do you need to go? Exactly. So, I mean, what do we do? Do we do we, do we just say no winner? It's a, it's a good question, and I think it's one for better men than I, uh, because for me, the, you know, two thousand to two thousand and ten or nineteen ninety nine onwards, um, it is part of history now, and I'd rather see us focus on chasing the future and improving that than uh, than trying to rewrite the past. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean. It, yeah, I'm kind of torn. Like, um, uh, as a as a crazy statistician, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't sit well when there's uh, there's little stars saying no winner of any race. You know, it's kind of uh, a little bit unfulfilling. But it is ridiculous to to award um, if we were to award Armstrong's victories to Ulrich or Vinokurov or or whoever. But um, yeah, I I don't know is the answer. It's I suppose it is kind of silly that Bjarne Ries is still listed as the ninety six tour winner you know yeah that's kind of silly but uh moving away from all that anyway one of the other interesting things for me anyway like when i started watching uh cycling it was kind of early 90s 92 93 and uh the vuelta was still in april but I'm, I'm sure like most people that end up watching cycling uh i was only really aware of the tour for the first few years so i i wasn't really aware of the vuelta and by the time i was it had moved yeah so you know you're you're history of cycling goes back a bit further like so you know i'd be interested to know what what you think about that move you know better worse same i I think it was much worse for the vuelta um but i don't think it was necessarily bad for cycling because as you say it was really crowded i mean the grand tours in essence it was like lighting the firework and once it was gone it was gone so um, on the whole i'd say probably good i I suppose it, it has it had an effect on a knock-on effect on the world championships because that got now into its into its current slot in October, whereas it used to be in August, just after the Tour de France. And you had and, the really you know, big guys riding it. Yeah, like Indurain and Le Mans and you know these guys really really focused on the worlds. And uh, I suppose that's certainly been lacking. Maybe Cadell Evans apart, 
in the last few years, you know, the, well, I suppose the Schlecks don't show any interest in any race, really. No. But the Schlecks don't turn up for the Worlds. Contador ne- never has, really, as far as I know. Uh, you know, um, we could see him that, this year, actually, because he'll race anything he can get once he comes back. Yeah, and it'll actually be, I mean, all doping aside, like, it'll be actually be really interesting to see how he gets on in this in in this one-day race where the likes of, you know, he'll find rivals in the likes of Cavendish and Gilbert. I mean, what, is not that, like, isn't that what it's all about? You know, these these um, these year-long rankings that try and compare Cavendish and Gilbert and Condor, it's just impossible. But here we have a race where conceivably any of them could actually win. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it will make it very interesting. And I, I think that is, um, it, it, it is something that the world has been lacking, I think, uh, in, in previous years. It, it has become this race for the classics riders only, whereas it used to be uh, a race that brought the classics riders and the Grand Tour contenders together in a way that we probably don't see in any other race. I think there would be something glorious about seeing somebody start the Tour de France in the rainbow jersey with a genuine chance of winning the race. That yeah, would, that like would be special. Well, Cara Levens kind of did that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Why do I keep forgetting about Cadell? That's shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I know I, I know what you mean. Like, um, since, since Le, I mean, Le Mans won the tour in the rainbow jersey. Yeah. And, uh, um, that, that would be special. And, uh, I, I, I don't know, like, again, Cadell Evans apart. I don't know why we keep on uh, exempting him from these little uh, statements, but um, I, I can't, I, it's hard to see it happening anytime soon anyway. Anyway, we should finish up because we both want to go away and watch um, what's probably the first really pivotal stage of this year's Giro. Um, so I'd like to thank everybody who's made a donation for their generosity. If you want to, if you want to join them in buying uh, Killian some Guinness and buying me something else then you can go to velocast.cc just click donate and please let us know that part of that donation is to go towards Killian you can follow Killian on Twitter where he is Irish Peloton and you can follow me I'm at Sofa Boy and please get involved with us uh, in terms of having a chat because that's part of the fun for us we love conversing with people and we'll be back next week I would imagine with a few more stories about the Giro for the next This Week in Cycling History (laughs) 